you're going to be so shocked at how quickly your anxiety goes down, your authenticity shines through, and people respond to that. I just did a training a few weeks ago, actually, in Texas with a company that sells into the construction industry. And you think about calling blue-collar workers. like These people are very relationship-oriented, and they are often very referral-oriented. And so if you're not authentic in that call, they're not interested. They think you're slimy. They think you're scamming them. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, I have not one, but two guests, Carlos Noche and Lisa Schneer, who both host the B2B Revenue Executive Experience podcast. And combined between the two of them, thanks to my research, they've got nearly half a century of experience together in B2B sales. Warm welcome to you both. And we're here to tell the tale. <laughs> thanks, Lee. What can you learn from uh, 50 years worth of B2B sales? Well, if you could summarize that down, perhaps between the two of you, in terms of your stories and kind of how you got to where you are today. I'll start. Born and raised in Halifax, Nova Scotia on the east coast of Canada. Definitely did not think I would end up in B2B sales or sales training sales methodologies. But I went to business school. My first job out of school was Enterprise Rent-A-Car for all of those out there who have also been through the management trainee program e-racers for life. And so I had to sell the insurance that nobody actually needs. And so that was my first kind of foray into sales. And then after that job, I learned a lot, did great there and took my first job as an SDR at a tech company, up and coming software company, and then caught the startup bug. The company I was working with called Radiant 6 was acquired by Salesforce two weeks after I started. And so went through that roller coaster ride, which was really fun. And yeah, definitely just decided, okay, the startup life is for me. So I joined a, a number of startups and built their SDR teams from the ground up. And then ultimately in 2020, when you know there wasn't enough craziness going on in the world, I decided to start my own consulting company where I help other companies with their SDR functions, sales functions, operations functions, enablement, and ultimately training. So in May of 2021, I joined Value Selling. I was trained in the methodology in 2018, totally fell in love with it. And when I had the opportunity to join the value selling team, I leapt at it. So that leads us right up to today, pretty much. It's been a, a great three and a half years and really excited to be here. Beautiful. And Carlos? My story's not as good. I was born a poor Latin kid out of New York City, the child of two immigrants. And that's about as far as I go into that part of it. I started out my career, and uh, for those who'll be surprised to know, actually in accounting. And I quickly learned that, you know, creativity and accounting equals fraud. So I got into accounting software and I spent almost 20 years in a technology space where I eventually became a worldwide VP of sales and service. And I've had different roles along the way. I did pre-sales when I started out and shifted over. And it gave me great experience and exposure selling technology at all sorts of industries. And about 15 years ago, I was going to take a break and I decided to join these Chamokes selling this value selling framework. And honestly, I was just going to do it for a year and then go back to being a VP or something else somewhere else. 
And I found out, A, it's a lot more rewarding than I ever expected. And two, it's a lot harder than I ever expected. And owning my own business and, you know, working with different companies, I, you know, me and Lisa, I think, love the fact that we get to work with different organizations, try to help them scale, advance, and make positive changes and impact individuals, and then, you know, move on to the next one. And uh, it keeps me on my toes. I think it keeps me young. What I love from both of you is the, uh, really the breadth of experience that you have, particularly with, I'm sure, the kind of clients that you're working with now. And so I want to as we start to get into things, probably from a fairly high level. And I, I'm interested to know, because I know that you work with B2B sales teams across different industries and verticals and so on. What would you say what the state of B2B sales is currently? So it depends on the industry. I've got some industries that I'm working with that are flourishing during this time, but well-funded, well in their growth strategy, and it's just go, go, go. And some of their challenges are actually more around scaling, hiring, and finding the right people and being able to enter new markets. So there is still some of that. I know most listeners here might be surprised to hear that. There is still some of that. I personally would say, though, that, of course, we're, we're still in that state of uncertainty in a lot of industries where we just don't quite know what the economy is going to do. There's still some companies that are going through their I'll call it right-sizing, but there are layoffs and things like that, which is unfortunate, but the job market is still pretty strong as well. So I think B2B sales right now is evolving. There's a thirst for human connection. At the same time, there's also an interest in being able to do your own research and understand for yourself as a buyer what you can find out without having to talk to a salesperson. So I think that that's created a little bit of an interesting flux where, of course, we've got a lot of things changing with the rise of machine learning and AI and what that's going to help us do, how it's going to help us be more productive in sales. And then uh, on the flip side also that, like I say, there's the craving for human interaction and human empathy and authenticity. The one thing to think about economic times now is uh, cash is expensive. So the days of cash is cheap, so we're going to hire a bunch of people, we're going to get things growing because we can get well-funded. Now you got organizations and you got VCs going, hey, you got to tighten your belt. There's no more new cash coming next month, next year, and you got to make do with what you got. And that's why I think you see some layoffs in some organizations, some organizations staying steady, and other organizations growing and, and taking advantage of the, you know, the talent pool that's out there. What I would say to folks that are in this industry is, in some ways, you know, we're flashing ahead with AI and other technologies. In other ways, the good old days of prospecting, getting to know your customers, connecting with individuals is still super strong. So if you have those skills, you're in high demand. Both beautiful summaries. And I also feel like there's a lot that we could dig into. So I'm going to pick the little snippet there that really stood out to me, Lisa. You mentioned the thirst for human connection, which I think probably resonated with me, certainly from my experience as well and from what I'm seeing from the market. And that's very much in a SaaS side at the minute. And interested to get kind of your perspective then and perhaps elaborate on what you mean by kind of that thirst for human connection. Is that coming from the buyer? And what are you seeing in your experience with relation to that? Very much so coming from the buyer, I would say there's still some fear, maybe a bit of disdain for like AI and technology and chatbots and prospecting in particular being a big part of my background, it seems has completely exhausted our markets, our buyers by 
you know, automating, poorly automating a lot of outreach. And I think buyers are, are sick of it and they're not responding to it. And that part of things is getting harder and harder to be successful with, which in a way makes my heart happy because I think it is really important to have calling as a big part of your strategy. And it is a challenge for teams. And I won't actually, listeners, I'm not going to throw a generation under the bus. I'll say a lot of people are hesitant to get on the phones and they feel like they're interrupting people's days and that what they have to say has no value. And, and I think having trained so many teams that are on those front lines trying to open those doors, it's so important to be authentic and genuine and passionate about what you're selling. And it comes across. If you are not interested in what you're selling, if you don't believe in it, if you're not interested in making the calls, I will tell you they can tell immediately. And I, as someone who receives a lot of cold calls and analyzes them because this is what I do for a living, I hear it in people's voices. And so, you know, I really think we need to get back to an attitude around I'm just having a conversation with someone. And if I learn something new, I'm winning. It doesn't mean I have to book the meeting. I don't have to book the demo. If I learn a new piece of information, I'm winning. And if you take the pressure off of that and just have a conversation with another interesting human, you're going to be so shocked at how quickly your anxiety goes down, your authenticity shines through, and people respond to that. I just did a training a few weeks ago, actually, in Texas with a company that sells into the construction industry. And you think about calling blue-collar workers. like These people are very relationship-oriented, and they are often very referral-oriented. And so if you're not authentic in that call they're not interested. They think you're slimy. They think you're scamming them. They think the good old snake oil salesman reputation shines through. Where if you come across as like, I just want to tell you about something that I think will, I know can make your business better because it does for our customers. Do you have five minutes? And like, instead of relying on these scripts and these complicated like sales tactics and strategies, like be yourself, be interested in what you're selling. And it's just, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I truly answered your question, Lee, but like it definitely is something that I'm hearing from multiple buyers as well is like, show me, you know me, show me you're interested in what you're doing. Show me, you know, something about my business. Show me something of value. Don't just ask for time. Don't check in or follow up. There's no value in that. You know, so it's it's coming across now that that we just need to go back to being people who are interested and genuinely curious about the people we're calling. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. This has come up a few times in, with a lot of folks that I've spoken to in, in a way, um, as someone coming from a younger generation, let's say, it's actually refreshing for me to hear it as well, you know, moving away from just the high activity, cash is cheap, let's just churn through it as quick as we can. It's refreshing to go back to the point of, you know, you want people to be passionate about it. And 
Carlos, I'm interested to get your perspective on this, because when we talk about it, it's like, oh, well, it just makes sense, you know, get reps excited about what they are selling and curious about the people that they are speaking to. But in certainly my experience, that's easier said than done. And for folks that are listening to this, you know, perhaps they're in managerial positions or leadership positions. It's like, actually, I've got a team right now that's morale is quite low. Confidence has been taking a bit of a beating because they have been following that old cool script and it's not working like it used to. Why is it not working? And so to those folks, how are you approaching uh, getting sellers back on board and getting that fire back, that passion back, and so that they are treating the people that they're speaking to as humans as opposed to contacts? First off, I think it starts with mindset, right? So we talk a lot about your mindset going into your prospecting. So before we, we talk about who we're selling to and understanding them, hey, are you in the right mindset? You know, so many times, you know, you pick up a phone call, which you didn't want to, and you, the voice on the other line is like, hello, Lee, is this Lee? Really? You called me. I'm like, does this ever work? <laughs> so you got to go in with the right mindset. And like Lisa mentioned it, hey, are you calling someone to sell them? Are you calling someone to get a lead? Or are you calling someone to help them? I mean, traditionally, sales was really a profession about helping others, helping others make a buying decision. And I think that's what you need to go back to versus, hey, I'm a sales rep and I'm trying to bamboozle you into buying my product, whatever that might be. So mindset's kind of important. And the second thing is really think about who you're calling. Can you organize your data in a way? And can you really think about the persona and industry you're calling into? And, you know, do you understand what they're going through? If you're trying to help them, do you understand what their problems might be that you're trying to help them with? So now, whether it's your emails or your phone calls or your social outreach is around helping that persona with those types of problems in the industry that we're having today, you might get a much better connection rate than just trying to bamboozle them with your message, right? And get in the right mindset, do your research. And the last part I'll throw into the mix to try to think about your intent to call them to be about providing something of value, not about you getting something. Now, I don't know why, but this year seems to be the year of LinkedIn outreach of, hey, Lee, I saw your profile is super interesting. I really love to connect with you and grow my network. You're like, all right, fine. And within five minutes, you get the, hey, Lee, when can I call you to pitch you our, about our office cleaning services or our accounting services or our financial planning services? And you're like, dude, I thought you found me interesting. What the hell? And we all call it that connect and pitch. And I mean, you totally lose credibility in doing so. And it's made connecting with folks over LinkedIn even more cautious now. Like, oh, someone's just trying to sell me something. I know it's just a pitch coming out. They're not trying to build their network and learn from others. They're trying to just pitch me something. And this is just another way to do it. Because, you know, I never respond to their emails, of course, and I never answer their, their phone calls. So just trying to give you a couple of different ideas to try to change the mindset, Think about, you know, who you're really calling and really trying to provide something of value in calling them. Completely agree. And so I'm interested to pull from, and I know you both leveraged the value selling framework, which is, if I understand it correctly, talking along very similar lines to what we are talking about here. So what I'm interested to kind of dig into then is, because all that we're talking about is really starting to boil down to messaging that's really effective and messaging that actually puts the customer or the prospect like front of mind and really trying to understand the challenges that they've got and how you can potentially help them, which 
on a very simple level, it's like, okay, I, I get it. But how do you start to build that at scale? How do you start to create something that around that very simple point starts to make it more consistent? The beauty of the value selling framework is that it is simple. It fits on one page. It's very customer oriented. We are taking people back to the basics of really good selling, which is actually not pitching our product, our features, our functionality. It's understanding our prospects and understanding their businesses and how they work. And by using it compelling questions, you know, so instead of, okay, I'm going to come in and talk to you about the weather and then ask you about your family and then be like, okay, I'll pitch you on all of our features and functionality and everything I can do for you. How about I understand what your goals are? And if I can connect to those goals and helping you to achieve them faster, better, smarter, then I'm going to be much more valuable to you than some problem that just needs fixing and it might go years without being fixed. So when I was first trained in value selling, I it was transformational for the business I was in because we were very much a nice to have. We had a cool, sexy product. Everybody liked seeing the demo and we leaned on that. And we ended up with, um, I you know had a fantastically successful SDR team because everybody wanted to see the demo so they could book meetings like nobody's business. But then when it came to converting those into sales, it was like, well, we can't justify the spend. We can't justify this. It's cool, but like we can't justify it. So when we went through value selling, we realized we were not asking the right questions. We were not asking enough questions. And we were very much getting the happy ears syndrome that salespeople get in their sales cycles where it's like, oh, everybody thinks it's cool. That means they want to buy. No. So what's really cool about the framework is that, you know, it's called value selling, but it's actually a cross-functional conversation framework. It's a way for you to ask questions to uncover another person's true motivation. That actually transcends sales. That goes across entire revenue teams. That goes across, honestly, we've got people who use it with their boards, their investors, people who use it with their kids. Like, it's like, you know, we, we, we have a colleague who says, you know, like, statements cause conflict, whereas questions uncover solutions. And so when you're asking questions and you're genuinely curious, then you are fully actually bought in to the fact that, like, I can help this person. And going back to your Carlos's answer to your last question there, Lee, was like talking about how do you get people over the grind or the burnout that might come with sales. And I, I was just thinking the whole time, I mentioned briefly in the intro that I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car right out of college and I worked at the airport and I'm watching families come off planes for their family vacation that they could barely afford as it was. And then I've got to sell them something that's going to be another like at that time, it was like $25 to $35 a day. And so that's a significant amount when people are really strapped for cash. And all of my colleagues fell back on the fear sale, you know, like, oh, but if something happens and you have to put it through your insurance, how long is it going to take you to get paid for that? And you're going to have to pay us up front and blah, blah, blah. So they were totally fear selling. I actually looked at it another way. I looked at it as you're putting your signature on a legal document. If I don't explain this document to you and God forbid something happens, then I didn't do my job. And I didn't tell you all of your options. So I very much take the approach of like, this is an education to a solution that you might not know exists. And if you don't want it, that's totally fine. Sign off on the line. But I need to educate you on everything that's possible. And that's how I've approached sales ever since is I'm telling you about a solution that could really help you or, you know, save you a lot of heartache, headache. 
And if you're not interested, that's fine. We'll part ways, friends, agree to disagree. And if it's something that you that resonates with you and is going to help you hit your goals, then great. Let's talk about how we can work together. So Carlos, jump in here because like the the value selling framework is is honestly based on five elements. It's uh, understanding business objectives, business issues, problems, solutions, value, power, and plan. And that fits on one page. And it's the way we ask our questions. It's the way we design our questions. And there's a big piece of that that's also part of understanding differentiation in your market and what makes you special, what makes you unique. Why would somebody work with you over anybody else? And going through the process is I often walk into the room and say, this is going to be eat your vegetables hour. You know, like we're not talking about anything revolutionary We're talking about going back to the proper diet and exercise you need to follow in order to be healthy. And so that's a lot of the fundamentals of it. Not a convoluted answer in any way. Absolutely. um, Love the perspective on it. And actually, as you were, there were a few things coming up to me, like as you were talking through it, but what actually I'm really quite curious to understand a, a bit more, and maybe Carlos, I'll throw this one to you, is through all of that and the way you explained it, Lisa, it's all about asking the right questions to get the right answers out. And what I like about that is because that's given you a rich amount of information from which to to work from, right? Then the question is, now what do I do with that information when I've got it? So, you know, I've spoken to lots of folks that various different methodologies from your med picks to your challenger sales of the world and pick your poison, I think, at this point. But they all come back to the same point of it's all well and good getting that information. And I look at it from a data perspective where it's like, okay, we've done our qualification now and we've got this information. Now, what do I do with it? So I'm interested in the in the value selling world and from the value selling perspective, how you then go about leveraging that information. And to your point, Lisa, just before we get into that, I know you mentioned you can use it even with your kids. So maybe if I narrow it down to uh, if we focus on sales for this part of it, but feel free to expand. So Lee, you hit the nail on the head, you know, all these different methodologies, and I've been through 11 different training programs throughout my career. I mean, they all talk about what information you need to get. And unfortunately, then our questions turn into ways of getting the information we want versus really uncovering the facts, the real data behind it. Not every customer is the right customer for you. Not every customer is at the right time and in the right situation to fit your needs. So once you get beyond, we create a great mousetrap and it's really sexy and cool and those early adopters are done and you really got to get back to really selling a product is really the pivot point where we usually come in. And then we get back to, okay, uh, first of all, whatever the framework is, is it internally facing? Like this is what you need to do to sell them Or is it externally, hey, this is what you need to really identify the right buyer in the right situation to convince them to make a buying decision. I I, kind of wish we got rid of the word selling in our thing because nobody likes to be sold. The reality is everybody loves the buy. So how do we help people buy the right products? And our questions should be around helping them through that process into the cycle or out. So um, when we think of it that way, I think it's a, it's a small little pivot point on how you use the process. So your next question is, okay, well then what do we do with the information? Well, first off, if you really thought about, hey, everything I'm asking them and everything I'm capturing should be information I'm providing back to them. Gartner says there's six to eight, 10 people involved in any enterprise deal where it's like six, 7.2. I haven't found the point two, but it's a lot of freaking people. And the reality is you don't even get to talk to all of them. You want to. 
but you don't. So you got to rely on others to champion your cause internally and say, hey, here's why we should do it. Here's why we should do it now. Here's why we should do it with these folks, right? So when you think about capturing this information, we call it a mutual success plan. Can we feed it back to them in a way to document, hey, Lee, here's you know why you're looking around. Here's why you're trying to do it now. Here's why you're trying to do it with us. Plus, Here's how you need to justify it. Here are all the people that need to get involved. And here are the steps to not only make a decision, but actually implement, go live, and get the outcomes, the value, if you will, that you're actually seeking for within this time frame. So if you really ask questions that help the customer make a buying decision and document it that way, it would be the same data you would need internally. Because internally, you mentioned the word scale. Selling is a team sport right? We're not showing up at your door with a little suitcase or a vacuum to sell you. We got a whole organization we're trying to get behind us from marketing, the sales, to pre-sales, to services, to customer success. Now think about it. If we really capture the data for the buyer, we could turn it around. Marketing, would you love to know why this customer bought from us originally? Why they selected us and the outcomes they were seeking? Hey, services, hey, the, here's the timing of when they want these outcomes to occur. Not just go live, right? They don't pour champagne over their heads when they sign the big contract. They also don't normally pour champagne through their heads just for going live. They got to be using the technology or services that you really rolled out. So what's the timing for all that? Because, you know, you talk to organizations big and small is the people, the committee that makes the buying decision is not always the people or the committee that roll it out and get it going. So how do you help with that transition? It's the same data at the end of the day. So Lee, you asked like, what do you do with this? You do a lot with it. First of all, you help the buyer make the buying decision. You keep them on track. And secondly, you share it across your entire organization so that we're all on the same page, all with a guided missile, not just to get revenue, but to get the outcomes the customer wants. That's how you get that renewal to happen and the expansion at the end of the day. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. I've got a very pointed question, but I'm I'm really interested to hear your your response. How do you then measure the impact of the framework once you've gone into a client, you've implemented it? How exactly would you go about measuring it and understanding the impact that it's had on the organization? So we do something crazy. We actually use our framework to sell our framework. I know, it's nutty. But I can't tell you how many times you go, Carlos, you know, we selected you guys because uh, you're one of the few people that actually used your actual framework to sell it. So one of the things we try to do early on is that I even document form, hey, we want to identify how are you going to measure success? What are the outcomes that you're seeking to achieve as an organization? And I want to document it. And they might be business outcomes for the organizations, grow revenue, improve margins, you know, improve the number of products that we attached to that initial sale, whatever those are. But they also might be personal outcomes. Hey, Carlos, I really want this to be a huge success story for me. I want this to help me pivot my career to the next job, whether it be internally, externally. 
Now, on the business outcomes, I, we documented them. It's all part of the mutual success plan. And now we can use that to track our success at the end of the day. Beautiful. That, that was simple. I want to move us into a slightly different gear in terms of something that I think, Lucy, you've mentioned it a couple of times already today. But what I've kind of noted down as we've been talking when we talk about like value selling is this idea of being simple and easy to use and, and, and also kind of for want of a better word, going back to basics in a way of, of treating sa- sa- selling as like a human-to-human experience. And of course, we've also got this looming technological kind of revolution. Is that a bit strong? Coming in with AI and 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 to your point, you know, it, it's actually pushed buyers to being even more fatigued with AI-generated outreach and automations and so on. But going into the future... Do you see AI as being playing a key role in kind of the seller's tool set? And I'm interested to know your perspective of why or why not. I like the perspective that AI could actually make us more productive as humans. So there's a certain amount of manual work that goes into particularly prospecting, also sales. But when you think about the research we need to do on people in order to have personalization at scale or customization at scale, the understanding of roles. So a lot of people that come into their first sales jobs are more junior. They don't necessarily understand fully how like their prospects businesses work. And now you can actually just go on ChatGPT and say, tell me about the responsibilities, the role and responsibilities and reporting structure of a project manager in the software industry and put it in a tone that's office casual. And then it will spit that information right back out at you. So you can be so much more educated about your prospects in a faster way than ever before. And as Carlos was mentioning when we were talking about like scaling prospecting across like role and industry, understanding our buyers and understanding their language. I think there's an opportunity here for us to do that. And then there is a certain amount of automation that's going to help us with our sales process. There's going to also be like a certain amount that buyers want, you know, like we were talking, we've been talking about this most of the podcast for like the opposite side of things like that they want the human connection there's still a very large amount of buyers who would prefer to do their own research, that would prefer to get to the point of, I feel like I fully understand my options before I engage with a human who's going to, quote unquote, pitch me. You know, So there's going to be a lot of information available to our buyers. And I think that AI is going to help us in a lot of ways. It's going to make us more productive. It's going to take away some of the manual tasks. It's going to, or like automate some of the manual tasks, but it's also going to help us to fully understand the problems that are facing, you know, certain industries, certain executives in certain roles at certain industries faster. I will just say that I do think there's, and and AI can help with this too, apparently. There's a big part of this that falls on personal branding because one of our six fundamental principles of value selling is that people buy from people. They don't buy from companies. They buy from people. So if you can beef up your LinkedIn profile, really have a voice, be credible in your industry, build that credibility through your personal branding so that when that buyer is doing their own research, what's there for them to find? Like, I I say this to SDR teams all the time is, you know, like, especially if they're not that active on LinkedIn, it's kind of like, well, if I'm interested, I'm going to Google you or I'm going to look up your profile on LinkedIn. What's there for me to find? What am I going to deduce about you from what I find? And so if I can have ChatGPT help me to build a better profile, to 
write something better. And it's not just ChatGPT. There's so many different options out there. We're talking, we talk to SDRs a lot about the Hemingway app, which is something that helps you make things more succinct and brief and uh, properly written. And so all of this combined kind of leads to the rise of, I guess, productivity, but also authenticity, being genuine, yet also being future focused. You know, I guess I've been around enough to see different technologies come and go. For folks that think the end of the world is coming because AI is here, I don't think it's over just yet. I think our profession is still here. But like anything, I agree with Lisa. It's a great tool to have. And if you're not playing around with AI, I don't know why. You know, whatever your role is, you should be dabbling with it and kind of seeing how it works and educate yourself on it. Because I think it, it's a great tool to make you better at whatever you do. On top of that, when you think about the industry, hey, if it's going to make you better, I think the reality is human to human connection, which is something that Lisa brought up, is still critical. You know, we had a CISO on our podcast and we talked about how do you get information? How, how do you look for new products? How do people prospect you? And he goes, honestly, he goes, I go to all these different trade shows and group settings to learn from others. If you really want to sell me at my level, be brave enough to be one of the speakers and talk about your hypothesis about what problem you're seeing out there and what way you think you could fix it, because that's how I absorb information. I'm not getting it from the cold call or the email that you're sending me, right? So... If you think about it, we got to find a way to still be connect individuals. And even in that setting, AI would be a great way to be better prepared for having that human-to-human -human connection, for getting better at it. Folks, sending a single sentence over text is not the way you're going to create human-to-human -human connection in the future. You're going to have to look somebody in the eye, which is hard, listen to their boring conversation, and find out some way of creating interest with them and making a human-to-human -human connection with them. I love that. And and I will say, Lisa, that the mention of the Hemingway app is not what I was expecting out of uh, the, this conversation. But uh, I would second that. And also on that note, and I come at it from a marketer's perspective, but it's so, I feel like with GPT-3, when that came in, that was kind of like five years ago now, that was supposed to come in as like, well, this is the end for copywriters because AI is just going to replace you. And actually, a really good example that I could share that I feel like would be relevant for people is that how I use it now is actually I might write one line, you know, and that could be, you know, for me, like copywriting, as, as you might for an email. And then I go, ah, it's not quite right, though. And I'll use ChatGPT and be like, this is my tone of voice. Can you give me a bunch of variations on that? And so it gives me ways of when I can't get through that initial block of writing in the way that I really want to. It's a really nice way of getting ideas and, and suggestions. And I also love the idea of using it for to support that research as well, to be able to go a bit deeper than, hey, I checked out your LinkedIn profile and I saw that you're responsible for this and therefore you must be relevant to this thing that I'm trying to sell. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, you and everyone else has made the same assumption rather than spent doing that a little bit more to really dig a bit deeper. I think everyone's into uh, building their own personal, well, I say everyone, a lot of people are into like building their own personal brand at the minute. You could stick a transcript through from a podcast, right? And summarize it. Guys, I have one final question for you both. Uh, feel free to, whoever wants to jump in first, but I would love to hear from both of you on it. What is one book that you'd recommend to other revenue and sales leaders? 
I have a number that I like. It's not actually a sales book, though. Like, I, I actually really enjoyed Atomic Habits by James Clear. And um, it's going to impact all aspects of your life because he does really break down the science behind how we create new habits, how we break old habits, and making it bite-sized so that it's not so overwhelming to change. And yeah, I think that's an important one. Julie Thomas just came out with a new book, from The Power of Value Selling. It's the framework that we all sell and make a living off of. And uh, I think she actually did a really good job in her latest book of kind of going through and relevant stories, the different aspects of selling. And I enjoyed it. But I, you know, and there's a lot of great books, as Lisa said, but you told me, Lee, I only can pick one. I'll give you one non, one non like kind of self-promotional pick, if you'd like, Carlos. It doesn't have to be a sales book. It could be a fictional book. There's one that I'm listening to now, but I'll, I'll pick one that I listened to before that I really liked, and that was Grit. And I think whether it's sales, marketing, whatever, it's not a higher education. It's not where you went to school. It's not what sports you played is. Are you gritty enough to fight through the hard stuff? Especially, I think, for the younger generation these days, and maybe because I'm sounding old-fashioned, grit is failing at something, waking up that next day and going, you know what? I'm going to find a different way to get over this because I know I can overcome this mountain ahead of me. And uh, I really enjoyed that book. And you can't see it behind me. I even got a little poster on grit behind me. I'll make sure we put links to all of those into the show notes. All right, Lisa, Carlos, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and picking your brains about all things selling and, and I think a lot of value selling today. For anyone at home that perhaps is interested to connect with you, ask any questions, maybe even listen to your podcast as well, because I know we talk about lots of similar things. Where can they find you? Well, my preferred uh, method is definitely LinkedIn. Please write me a note and say that you at least listen to this podcast or listen to one of our podcasts because I'm a big believer in the note makes the connection. And our podcast that Carlos and I co-host, as Lee alluded to, is called the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or you can go to our website at www.b2brevexec.com. For me, same thing, LinkedIn. And Lisa, I love your point about, you know, if you are going to link into me, send me a little note of why you're linking into me. If, if you reference this podcast with Lee, that's awesome. You know, Lisa gives me a reason why to connect with you. I'll be sure to include links to all of that down below. So to everyone listening, you can find Lisa and Carlos and say hi from me. All right, guys. Thank you so much again. And to everyone that's listened this week, thank you so much. We'll catch you soon. Thanks, Lee. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.